We look forward to her reflections on the Eucharist, our first and final love this evening. So I'm very excited to be with you all tonight. Um, Kim asked me to speak about love for the Eucharist. So um, honestly, this talk, I think more than any other class or talk that I've ever given, um, has just kind of called me to conversion and has really called me to reflect on my life, on my own prayer life in particular, my own sacramental life. Um, in a way that really nothing that I've ever talked about or, or um, taught about um, has ever done. So if if you find that some of these Bible verses tonight, some of these saint quotes, um, some of the lives of the saints, if you find that these are kind of challenging you um, and are maybe kind of rubbing up against places in your own heart that maybe you don't believe part of this, or maybe you're realizing, like, okay, if this is true, then, like, my life needs to reflect it more. Um, you're not alone. I've been going through that for the past few weeks. Um, so, yeah. My prayer tonight is that we are all called to conversion in some way, not by my words, but by the words of the Lord. So, um, last week... Towards the end of the week, I read in the bulletin um, and on the little uh, program about this soup supper, and I read the description that I had emailed to Kim a few weeks ago, and I read it, I said, oh dear, I have overpromised. <laughs> I listed a lot of things, and I do not know if this is going to reflect it or not, so hopefully you all maybe read that description and were curious and have forgotten by now all the grand many promises that I made. Um, yes, yes. I sound like a campaign election or something. We didn't make it all, but that's okay. Okay, so the Eucharist, our first love, our final love. Um, we're going to look at parts of scripture tonight. We're going to look at some of the lives of the saints. And Hopefully, these all really come back to the heart, back to our own love for God, and more importantly, um, his love for us, that we can move from that place um, to love of him and love of others. So, as we look at the scripture passages tonight, I want to keep in mind this um, prayer, I guess, of St. Francis. These are questions that he would ask. Lord, who are you and who am I? And in that order, we can come to understand ourselves in relation to God um, and understand who we are, why we were created. But it begins with the Lord. So I would propose that tonight we'll find uh, answers to these two questions as one, the Lord as the sacrificial lamb, and then us in relation to that as a chosen people, a redeemed people. And secondly, we'll find the Lord as the bridegroom and us as the bride. So these images are woven all throughout scripture. Um, yeah. And all throughout the tradition of our church. So... We're going to look at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Bible. Okay, John really isn't right in the middle, but bear with me. We have beginning, middle, and 
end. Um, so we'll begin in Exodus. And yes, on your uh, little review sheets there, you can just go ahead and write right now that the presenter had too many words on her slides. They were difficult to read. I know, I know. But the other option is me reading to you and not having it in front of your eyes. So here's, I picked the former. So this is Exodus, the Passover. Um, I'm sure many of you know that our Mass today is directly tied to this Passover, but it's worth our reflection again. So this is God speaking to Moses. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, they are to take a lamb from, for each family, a lamb for each household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You keep it till the 14th day of this month, then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And later, this is how you shall eat it with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. And all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be of remembrance, a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. There's a lot going. So, we have the year-old male, a male without blemish. This, of course, prefigures Jesus, who is the spotless Lamb of God. Um, you shall keep it till the 14th day. Um, and actually, they would even bring that lamb into their house um, for that week. They would enter the house on uh, seven days before the Passover. Um, very similar to how... Jesus would enter Jerusalem seven days before his death and would be taken into the house of the Lord, right? And then the blood that's on the doorpost. Of course, we know that this saved the Israelite people from death. And the blood on the doorpost, it would have kind of made a cross shape on that lintel. And so the blood of the lamb saving the people in the shape of a cross, certainly this prefigures Christ and his cross that would then save us from our sins. So this is on, the Passover is on the eve of God bringing the people out of bondage. This Passover, and still our Mass today, has something to do with our freedom and with God freeing us from some type of bondage. For the Israelite people, that was physical bondage, and in giving them the Ten Commandments, he sought to free them from spiritual bondage to sin. And for us, too, he seeks to free us from the domain of sin. 
And finally, with this passage, it shall be a day of remembrance and a perpetual ordinance. That means that somehow our mass is a continuation of this sacrifice. If this Passover isn't going to go away, um, then we're carrying that out somehow, if it's to be a perpetual ordinance. So, the other thing, oh, finally, truly, finally with this passage and then we'll move on. But, getting this type of worship right, getting the Passover right and doing exactly as the Lord commanded, it says, no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is truly a matter of life and death for the Israelites in Egypt. If they don't do this, they don't do it right, they don't put the blood on the doorpost, it's life and death for them. And then I would argue that in John chapter 6, Jesus' words take up the same theme of the bread, of the manna, um, that the Israelites would have had in the desert, the same theme of the Passover, and he makes the stakes really just as high. This is from the Bread of Life discourse. And Jesus answered them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. So Jesus sets himself up as this bread. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, is for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews disputed among themselves. They were surprised by this. This is surprising. This still surprises our ears. Um, yeah. And so Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. So not only is Jesus drawing on these themes from the Old Testament, but he's setting the stakes of life or death here in his person. then for us to consider, do we consider that our receiving the Eucharist, that our devotion to the Eucharist, that our recognizing that Jesus is truly in our tabernacle, that Jesus is truly present in Mass, do we see this as our own matter of spiritual life and death for us? That's just for your own reflection table discussion about this. <laughs> so finally, in Revelation, this is uh, the very final chapter of Revelation. Yeah, 22. Um, 
Sorry, that 22 is actually the chapter number. Oops, not the verse number. First one. Yeah. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit and producing its fruit each month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will be no more night. They will need no light of the lamp or the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The theme of the Lamb is still here in this final book of the Bible, that it is uh, the Lamb is the central focus of this heavenly scene of worship. And it says that this tree of life is for the healing of the nation. No longer is this only focused on freeing the nation of Israel from bondage, on healing them from all that's happened in Egypt and walking them into the promised land. By the end of the Bible, by the end of time, this is for all the nations who have come to accept Jesus. This is a very hopeful thing that no one is excluded from the kingdom of God who wishes to enter into it. And there will be no more night. They will need no light, lamp, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. So this is the eternal feast that goes on and on that scripture ends with. So we see the theme of the sacrificial lamb. And this has been really beautifully depicted in some art um, throughout the centuries. This is the altarpiece of Ghent. Um, I believe that's a Flemish painter, I want to say. Oddly enough, one of the most stolen paintings in all of history, Napoleon once stole this, um, it was returned, and then it was stolen during World War I and returned, and then Hitler um, and the Nazis stole it again, and it was stuck in a salt mine apparently for some time, um, and rather damaged from that because anything would probably get damaged in a salt mine, especially a priceless painting. Um, but it has, again, been restored. So, thank goodness for that. Um, quite a long history, though, of this. So, this seems quite a lot like Revelation that we just read. We have this uh, fountain of life. We have, if you're the viewer here and you're looking at this, and you were trying to walk into the painting, you'd have to go through that fountain if you want to get to the altar where the lamb is. And what's really interesting about this, if you look at the shape of that fountain, it's an octagon. Of course, we can see the imagery of baptism here, but that octagon in particular, I really like as an image of baptism. Um, God created in seven days, we know this. And then, his resurrection was sometimes called that eighth day, the day of the new creation. So if you look at our baptistries today, they're still shaped like octagons very often. And if you look up at St. Dominic's actually, you'll see that that whole church is shaped like an octagon. So kind of cool imagery in our churches still. Um, yeah. So we go through this 
baptistry, fountain of life, depicted here, to the altar where the Lamb of God is. And we have all these things coming from all the different directions. We have angels gathered around the throne and the blood of the Lamb being poured straight into that chalice. Just a really beautiful scene of new heavens and a new earth. Um, I believe these are also specific churches in the background. Um, so, yeah, new heavens and a new creation. It's beautiful. In one of those restorations that they did, one of the more recent ones, um, as, as things get restored and painted over and tried to be fixed, um, sometimes the artists, of course, make mistakes and things get a little lost to time. So they did this restoration, they used some pretty cool technology, it seems, to really get underneath and see what was actually, like, the first paint on the painting, um, to try to get back to that. And what they found, under the lamb's face, was that it used to look like this first one, here. This was what the, this was what the, like, restorers had done over the centuries and what it looked like most recently. But then, when they restored it, they found that the original, when it was painted by um, Van Eyck, Van Eyck, thank you. <laughs> it's like I just said it. They found that this is closer to it, and it looks at the lamb's face. You might be looking at that and thinking, that looks almost a little human. The way that his eyes, they aren't on the sides there, they're pointed right at us. And that mouth, like, it looks like he wants to speak or something. Like, that's just a much more human, emotional, dynamic face that's, like, looking at you and kind of calling you into it, calling you forward. Um, yeah, very striking. It's not just an indifferent lamb either. This one kind of looks like, I don't know, a little bit indifferent. He's just standing there. But this one looks, um, yeah, much more engaged with the people around. Okay, so these are images of the sacrificial lamb. And I want to tie in, though, then, this image of the bride and the bridegroom that we as the church are the bride of Christ. Actually, when we refer to the church we were, as like a whole, we say she, because the church is both the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. And the fact that the church is both the bride of Christ and the body of Christ is really interesting. It says something um, about the relationship of God with his church. It also says something about our teaching on marriage. So. To do this, to look at this image of bridegroom as Jesus, as God, and us as the bride, we'll turn to the very famous Song of Songs. This is in the Old Testament, uh, shortly after the Psalms, originally attributed to Solomon. We'll just go with that for the sake of it. Um, I'm not here to debate the authorship of the Song of Songs. But these are the opening lines. And we can read in this whatever was happening in Solomon's life or whatever context this was originally written in. But of course, whenever we read the Old Testament, we want to see it with the lens of the New Testament and see how Christ is revealed in it. So, Song of Songs, 
first chapter, first verse, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine, your anointing oils are fragrant, your name is perfume poured out. Therefore the maidens love you. Draw me after you, let us make haste. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I'm really not sure if this is where um, we get the words in the Mass. It is truly right and just, our duty and our salvation, right? But I, I often think of this line, rightly do they love you. It is truly right and just when they say that. But in that first line, how do we read Christ in this? The church fathers have attributed this to Christ that if we look at it and we say, you know, let him come. No more prophets, no more just burning bushes, no more of people speaking or letters or writing. We want to see Jesus. Let him come in person. So we are asking the Lord to come, that we want to meet him face to face. And of course we can see in the Eucharist that he has come in the flesh in a way that who could have imagined? That we truly get to meet him and we get to receive him who is God at every Mass. <coughs> My parish priest growing up pointed this out and I actually, I should have dug more into this to see how closely related the words are. Um, so don't take this part for gospel truth. But he would talk about, especially on Corpus Christi, that the words consume and consummate have the same root for a reason. That this becoming one with um, is similar in both. So we consume the Lord, we become one with him. The word, the title of this, the Song of Songs, um, most Catholic Bibles will still say Song of Songs. A lot of um, our Protestant brothers and sisters will call it the Song of Solomon. But the Song of Songs, we can think of this as, uh, I don't want to say a play on words, but it's trying to directly point to that the Jewish people would have called the inner part of the temple the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwells. And so there's temple imagery woven all throughout this Song of Songs. And it is, so when we see the king has brought me into his chambers here, we can think of that holy of holies that only the priest could enter. And now when that veil is torn, when Christ dies on the cross, that veil up to the holy of holies was torn, and now we can enter in. So we can read ourselves as the bride here, who is allowed to enter into the chambers of the king and is even called there, not just like sneaking around and getting a peek, but we're truly called into this presence of God and that he desires us to be there. So we have a sacrificial lamb and us as the chosen people, the redeemed people, redeemed by the sacrifice of Christ. And we have us as the bride and Christ as the bridegroom who pursues us, who gives up everything to come and find us. These two might seem like somewhat different images. Um, we'll get back to that. Sorry. 
these two might seem like different images, but when I um, was originally kind of praying with this idea, this title of Christ as Bridegroom, I was like, I'd like a picture to go with this. This was actually several years ago. Um, I want a picture to kind of go with this meditation that's been on my heart and mind. So I googled, you know, Christ the Bridegroom, and it came up with images that looked like this. And I was like, Google must not understand me. That's not what I meant. I wanted Christ the Bridegroom. He should be in some type of like robe with a crown, maybe like kind of wedding feast at Cana-esque. Like he should maybe have like a chalice or something. Like the Bridegroom. And yet, the tradition of the church calls images like this Christ the Bridegroom that this image of Jesus suffering with a reed in his hand and a crown of thorns on his head, with everything taken from him, this is where he loved us, where he showed us his love in the grandest way. That this is the God who had laid out his life for us, and that this is how he marries his church and makes his bride spotless so that she can come to the wedding feast in heaven. This is the bridegroom of the church who would go to any length and who would remain and wait for us in our tabernacles now. Yeah. Um, this painting actually my roommate had first uh, this particular image of Christ the bridegroom and it's um, it hangs in the National Gallery in Ireland and this one in particular is titled Ecce Homo, Behold the Man. The same words that Pilate said when he brought Christ out. So we can also read, um, one of my professors pointed this out, that so you might have heard that Christ is the new Adam, right? And that Adam being the first man, in a way Pilate unbeknownst to him, really declares Jesus as the new Adam when he says, behold the man. Like This is somewhat Genesis language of recreation, that this is the standard of, um, this is the standard of love, this is the standard of our humanity. So with this image of Christ the bridegroom, I want to think too, just for a moment, about when we have those um, those cute little second graders who make their first communion. Um, the boys wear their nice little suits, but what do the girls wear? They wear they wear all white dresses, right? So with veils, yes. So this is me on my first communion. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, <laughs> I had lice just about. Mm, month or two before this, and my mom made my sister, that's my sister, not my brother, and I get haircuts so, so short, and I was so mad about it, because she was done dealing with life, so my first communion pictures, I look like I have a boy haircut, I thought. <laughs> Anyhow, um, yeah. But we have the girls wear white, right? Because this really is meant to, um, have that same imagery somewhat of a wedding. And when we walk up that aisle 
every week at Mass, I, I often sit at the back, but that's actually often just because I, I really try to be on time, and I, I really try. <laughs> that's all I'll say, I'm really trying. But I get a nice, long walk up to communion every week, it seems. And if we can think in our mind as we walk up to communion, that's, that's just like a bride walking down the aisle to her groom. And if we can walk with that kind of reflectiveness, that kind of considering this moment a pivotal one, that every time I receive the Eucharist, um, if we can think this, every time that we receive the Eucharist, like our relationship with God is going to get stronger every time. And that that is a pivotal moment for our lives, for our relationship with God, for accepting his life into our life. Jesus in the New Testament also picks up on this theme of marriage and of weddings. He uses this parable of a man who threw a wedding feast for his son, and he called him. I'm not going to read this whole thing. I'm going to summarize it for you. He called people to the wedding banquet, and they decided not to come for whatever reason. In Luke's gospel, it's not a wedding banquet, but it's a different feast, and the one guy says, you know, I just bought a field that I need to go look at. Um, consider me excused. The other says, you know, I bought a cattle something that I need to examine. I won't be there. And so the man sends out his servants to go find other people in the street. Anyone who can come. And they made light of it. And that doesn't mean... <laughs> that this wedding feast that he's throwing is any has any less value. It doesn't mean that he needs to change anything about the wedding feast. This is this is really on the guests. And I mean, how we can read that into our mass today, right? That even though I'm standing here and I'm saying and we all know that something really really profound, really life-changing is happening up in that church every Sunday, and yet it seems like so many people in our culture just kind of don't go. But it wasn't us who see this amazing thing happening that goes a little unnoticed by everyone. Jesus himself said this. He, he said that the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding banquet that a lot of people don't seem to care about. So this is nothing new under the sun that we're that we're seeing in our in our world. So he sends people out to bring others in. And they come, there's new guests, the hall was filled with wedding guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed that there was one not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he threw him out. And we're left to wonder, like, okay, like, people didn't even want to come, though. Like, isn't it pretty good that this guy made it in the door? Like, who cares what he's wearing? He's here to your apparently, like, not well-attended thing. But we do know that we can come to Mass, right? We can come, we can check the box, we can say that we are Mass-attending Catholics even every Sunday, and yet oftentimes... Our heart's not really in it. Our mind's not really in it. Um, 
And it still, it doesn't just matter that we show up, it really does matter how we show up. And how we live the rest of our lives, how we prepare for this feast and treat it as the wedding feast of the Lamb. So it matters that we have this um, clean, washed robe, that we've gone to reconciliation, that we are truly in relationship with Christ so that we, when we walk down that aisle towards him, our receiving him and wanting to be in union with him is a true desiring to be in union with him in every way. Christ is the bridegroom. His whole church is the bride. Um, I don't know if this is weird imagery for the guys in the room, but truly all the church fathers have said it, um, that the church is the bride. And we are all pursued by the Lord. So for our own reflection, do I listen to Jesus call me his beloved one? If you've never heard him say that in prayer, if you've never felt that deeply within your hearts, um, we have adoration here on Tuesdays. We have this adoration at other places um, in the county. Just find a time, go before the Lord and say, Lord, do you call me your beloved one? And just wait for his answer. Stay in silence there and pray on that. So, we looked at some scripture of these images. I want to talk about a few saints who have heard God call them and have responded in really beautiful ways. Perhaps one of the most famous converts of all time, St. Augustine. pictures up here for a few reasons. Um, St. Augustine was from northern Africa. Why our paintings ever started portraying him with lighter and lighter skin is beyond me. I'm not going to ask questions. I'm not going to get into a race theory, anything of any sort, but I put both these pictures up here for a reason. So these are both St. Augustine, um, and there's something beautiful about each of them. Um, this one shows him with a flaming heart and I just love this that his heart is on fire for God um, I used to think I, I saw this painting when I was young and I used to think that like it almost looked like he had like caught it you know like God had like maybe thrown his own sacred heart because the only heart I had ever seen on fire was Jesus's um, so I thought you know maybe he like threw it to him and he caught it like that which I thought was pretty cool. It turns out it, it's probably St. Augustine being portrayed as holding his own heart, which was just inflamed with love for God. But there's something profound about that, that St. Augustine's heart became like the heart of Christ, inflamed with love for him, and we portray it as such. So back in St. Augustine's day, he was a catechumen, right? He was a convert, so he went through the whole catechumen process, um, which was probably longer than what we have today. Um, probably a little more intense in a lot of ways. Um, actually, I, I do know it was more intense. I, I run our RCAA here. It had to be more intense. <laughs> um, maybe I should do something about that, but it's okay. Um, 
So, back in that day, though, they would hear the gospel, they would hear it preached that Christ was risen, they would learn a lot about the faith, and then they would be baptized. And they would, right before their baptism, they would be told about baptism and what's about to happen here. They waited till very, very late to actually tell them that, and they really only gave them the practicals of, here's what's going to happen, here's what you do. Okay, go be baptized now because you've, you've wanted this. And then the next day, they would come back to church, and the bishop would preach to the newly baptized about baptism and tell them what they just experienced. And it was the same way with the Eucharist. They would receive the Eucharist probably that same night that they were baptized. Um, and then the next day they would come and they would learn what the Eucharist was and be told what they just received. So they really did have a true post-baptismal, uh, we call it mystagogy, that post-baptismal catechesis, and they kept it that way. Uh, baptism and Eucharist in particular were kind of kept as a secret thing for the Christians. Mm -hmm. um, I have, St. Augustine writes about this later and we'll get into that a little bit. But those were kept as a secret thing, which I think is really interesting that you have to be Christian to find out about this, and that that's held as a very um, a very precious thing. It's not something they're shouting from the rooftops, but it's if you, if you start to love this Jesus, if you start to want to follow him, and you start to show signs of conversion, and want to be more like him, want to follow the commandments, and want to be part of this church, if you start to show signs of that, will tell you about how much he really does love us and about what great lengths he does go to still in our day for us. But there is a little bit expected before that. Um, there's a beauty to each way that we do it. Um, we certainly, we actually do still kind of have po post-baptismal mystagogy today because we baptize infants, right? And you can't really tell an infant what's about to happen to them. They just kind of experience it and it goes however it goes, um, usually with crying. Okay, and then it's after the fact that we tell them about, you know, when you were baptized, this is what happened to you. You were made a child of God and all this stuff, right? So we do still have a post-baptismal mystagogy, at least for infants. Um, we don't so much have that post-Eucharist uh, mystagogy about that. We really prepare kids before it. I did once have the very unique experience of um, having an accidental uh, post-first Eucharist mystagogy. Um, I was a Eucharistic minister in college. We had a mass for the Feast of St. Francis. We were a Franciscan college, not Franciscan University of Steubenville, sorry. Um, I do love them, but I didn't go there. Anyhow, it was a Franciscan school. Um, but we had this mass for the Feast of St. Francis, so a lot of students who didn't really go to mass just came because they did. And this guy who was in my freshman class, he, I was a Eucharistic minister, he came up, he like put his hand out, gave him the Eucharist, I'd never seen him mass before, and I caught him in the dorms later, I was like, Raph, come here, are you Catholic? He says, no. I said, oh dear goodness, have a seat, I'm about to tell you what you just received. <laughs> so, it was a very St. Augustine moment here of teaching the accidentally, uh, communicant, accidental communicant, what he had just received. Um, he was quite surprised. It was, it was beautiful. Um, yeah. So, even if we have been Catholic since our baptism, even if we received baptism as, a, as an infant and first communion as a 
second grader, do we still hear the Lord calling us to that deeper conversion like Augustine heard? And Augustine would see the Eucharist and the body of Christ there assembled as very much, pretty much one and the same. So he calls the people of God, the church, this holy redeemed city, the assembly and society of the saints, is offered to God as a universal sacrifice, sacrifice by the high priest who in the form of a slave, Christ of course, that we saw as the bridegroom, in the form of a slave went so far as to offer himself for us in his passion, to make us the body of so great a head. Such is the sacrifice of Christians. We who are many are one body in Christ. The church continues to reproduce the sacrifice in the sacrament of the altar, so well known to believers, wherein it is evident to them that in what she offers, she herself is offered. So that yes, it is the sacrificial lamb on the altar, it is Jesus that we offer on the altar, to God the Father, but it also has to be us that we offer. This can't just be, oh, we receive communion and we're good. This has to be, we receive the Lord, we receive him totally, and we give ourselves totally. Because isn't that what love is? That we receive love and we respond in, in kind. And it's only that kind of love that really changes us, right? Um, I told part of my own thoughts on kind of my trajectory of discerning my vocation. I told part of that to the high schoolers this weekend. And um, it was actually after that that I was kind of reflecting on, you know what, <laughs> when I was discerning a religious life for really a good portion of my teenage years and college years, um, I would go on retreats with sisters and nuns and convents and it was, it was beautiful. If, if anyone is discerning religious life in here, which I, I don't know how many people really count for that, but it is a beautiful vocation, um, and I have deep appreciation for it. They, sisters were the ones who formed my prayer life in many ways. Um, but as I was going on those retreats and following the schedule of the sisters on these weekends occasionally, um, I felt really holy. Really holy. Like you wake up at 5 a.m. when their bells go off, and you go down the steps to prayer with them, and they're all walking barefoot in there, and the first words you hear in the morning are, let us pray. It's just, it's lovely, and you feel really holy. But <laughs> apparently that is not what God was calling me to. And you know what? In this last year of um, year and a half of dating and being engaged and moving towards marriage and preparing for that, there have been so many moments where I do not feel holy. <laughs> where I am looking across the room and being like, how do I say this nicely? How do I like, how do I phrase this in a way that isn't angry and isn't frustrated and like actually says what I mean, but like isn't mean? like doesn't sound like my mother like how do I do this <laughs> and there have been just so many moments of that where I don't feel holy 
And it's precisely in that that I realized my own poverty and I realized that call to conversion. And I realized that, oh, this is the work that God is working in me. That it's not that I already am holy and he's just helping me along, but that I truly realize where I need him. And I truly get to see the ways that he's calling me to grow. So, that we truly, it's that kind of love, this is my point, that the kind of love where we receive love and try to respond in kind, that's the kind of love that makes us holy. Whether it's with another person, but particularly when it is Jesus in the Eucharist, when he gives himself, we try to give ourselves, and that's the deep work of conversion that the Lord is working. He has a love that doesn't change us and cause us to become who we are, become who we're meant to be. It's, yeah, that's not, that's not true. So, what, this is St. Augustine again, on this kind of secret of baptism. Eucharist. What is hidden and not public in the church? The sacrament of baptism and sacrament of the Eucharist. The non-Christians can see our good works, but the sacraments are hidden from them. The things that they can see rise up from those they cannot, like the whole of the visible cross rises from the base of the cross fixed in the earth. So we look at this and we wonder, okay, if we didn't tell people about baptism, we didn't tell people about the Eucharist, if they just saw the church's good works, if the Catholics in their workplaces, if the Catholics who are their next door neighbors, if people started just seeing, you know what, the people who go into those buildings, the, the one on 6th Street and the one on 22nd and the one on Superior, the people who go into those buildings on Sunday, there is something entirely different about them. And we want to find out what it is. If this causes us to reflect, can people see our lives and actions and know that we know the living God? Do they see that our good actions must rise up from some base, this base of the cross that they cannot see? takes up both this theme of love um, and the theme of Christ as the sacrificial lamb in the Passover. The Lord, having loved those who were his own, his chosen people, loved them to the end. Knowing that the hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father, in the course of a meal he washed their feet, this good work that they can see, and gave them the commandment of love in order to leave them a pledge of his love, in order to never depart from his own and to make them shares in his Passover, he instituted the Eucharist as the memorial of his death and resurrection and commanded his apostles to celebrate it until his return. So we see that beginning, middle, and end there. That he always had the Eucharist in mind, he instituted it himself, and he intends that this be a pledge of his love and a pledge of the glory to come until he does come. Another man who 
heard the words of Christ and who responded wholeheartedly, much in the way Augustine did. Um, honestly, they might have been the two greatest churchmen of their own centuries. Pope John Paul II. This is him on his first communion day. And he said later that on his first communion day, he met his best friend, and he never forgot him. I cried earlier looking at this picture. This is Pope John Paul then, celebrating his last Christmas Mass. And you look at that man who had received the Eucharist in a not-yet-occupied Poland decades before. You see a man who has walked through a lifetime of suffering, lost his whole um, immediate family by the time he was 27, I believe. Um, so you're older than me. Who had been through occupied Poland, who had become a priest in secret, who had been shot, who had had a different attempt on his life. Um, and yet he's there celebrating the mass dealing with Parkinson's, just a lifetime of suffering, but with Christ at his side. And that became a witness of joy to so many people. He's the Pope who started World Youth Day. He's the Pope who began that whole tradition of youth gathering um, from all around the world for days of celebration and pilgrimage and prayer. Um, just a beautiful witness to hope, a beautiful witness, to joy in the midst of suffering. And he emphasized, I just recently found, um, at a thrift store here in town, this book that I had not even knew existed, but it's Pope John Paul's spiritual journal, his like talks from the retreats he went on throughout court. It's like starts when he became a priest or whereabout, thereabouts and goes almost until death. So really amazing to read some of his own notes and such. Um, but he wrote this, Actually, on March 6th, I was rereading these yesterday, and I was like, wow, that's kind of amazing. March 6th, 1998. He's going on this retreat, and he just wrote these brief notes. The Eucharist, the sacrament of death and resurrection, the mystery of eternity, sacramentally present in the Eucharist. And he focused that the Eucharist is not only the highest point of God's love, but he really focused on that this comes from the power of the resurrection. That it is not, it's like Jesus is alive, right? It's not Jesus' dead body that we receive. That, that would be weird. Um, but this is the living Christ who we receive. And it reminded me that at almost every Mass, we say some, we say some, well, we do say this at every Mass. We say some version of this, and sometimes we say this version of it. So, the mystery of faith. We proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again. That this Eucharist is about Jesus' death, but rooted in the power of his resurrection and really a celebration of his resurrection. So, this calls us to think about those words of the Eucharistic prayer more and more and maybe see which ones we've stopped catching and try to pick them up again, maybe even read through the Eucharistic prayers um, and see what, because what we uh, what we pray is what we believe, lex arande, lex credende. 
um, is this old Latin phrase. So when we look back at the prayers of the church, we find more and more what we believe is spelled out in our prayers. So finally, I have for you um, another saint who loved the Eucharist, um, St. Thomas Aquinas, great um, Dominican theologian, great writer, and for the feast of Corpus Christi, which was begun in his time, um, the Pope called for pe for uh, two theologians in particular, um, him and I believe it was Bonaventure, to write hymns for this feast of Corpus Christi and submit them, and they would pick hymns and prayers and such for this. And um, the story goes that after Bonaventure heard Thomas Aquinas's, he either tore his up or he simply ate his paper. <laughs> I first heard that story from Dominicans, so whether it's true or not, we have, for the Feast of Corpus Christi, St. Thomas Aquinas's, um, we don't know necessarily what Bonaventures were. They were probably also great. He's also a doctor of the church, but apparently these were better, or Bonaventure was just really humble. So, um, for us to pray with, um, I won't have us sing this for so many reasons, but the words of this are just beautiful, and they really get to the truth of what this Eucharist is. That is Godhead here in hiding, whom I do adore, masked by these bare shadows, shape and nothing more. See, Lord, at thy service, lies, low lies here a heart, lost, all lost in wonder, at the God thou that truly this Eucharist is Jesus. And that means we can worship the Eucharist. That when we walk into the church and we genuflect, um, we, we wouldn't do that in Protestant churches. We genuflect there because it is God truly present and we can worship the Eucharist in front of us just as the Lord standing before us. That we would all fall to our faces if Jesus all of a sudden appeared here. And yet he is the tower. Seeing, touching, tasting, are in thee deceived. How says trusty hearing that thou be that shall be believed? What God's Son has told me, take for truth I do. Truth himself speaks truly, or there's nothing true. That all of our senses are taste, right? We can't taste that this is Jesus. We can't see that this is Jesus. That we hear those words of the Eucharistic prayer that echo Jesus' own words. And that is how we know our one sense that doesn't deceive us here is our hearing. Um, and that this relies on God's own truth. A theme that I didn't pull out in those beginning, middle, and end scripture verses is they're all, all tied to truth in some way, too. So you can go back and find how truth is tied there. I had my middle schoolers do that last week. They were actually pretty good at pulling that out. On the cross thy Godhead made no sign to men. Here thy very manhood steals from human ken. Both are my confession, both are my belief, and I pray the prayer made by the dying thief. That we, on the cross, in that Christ the bridegroom suffering, it's kind of hard to tell that he was God, right? And yet we know, and we would profess that, and the thief professed that, the good thief, St. Dismas, and so did that soldier with the lance at the foot of the cross, truly this man was the son of God. That in the Eucharist then both are hidden, but we can still see. 
I am not like Thomas, words I, wounds I cannot see, but I plainly call thee, Lord and God is he. This faith each day deeper be my holding of, there be thou the sweetness man was daily make me harder hope and dearer love. O thou our reminder of the crucified, living bread, the life of us for whom he died. Lend this life to me then, feed and feast my mind. There be thou the sweetness man was meant to find. Like what tender tales tell of the pelican, bathe me, Jesus Lord, in what thy bosom ran. Blood that but one drop of has the power to win all the world forgiveness of its world of sin. Last piece of art here. Is that pelican? That's an odd line, right? So, why would we call Jesus a pelican? There is an old um, misconception that the pelican, um, but it's, it's a beautiful misconception, that mother pelicans in times of famine when there was no food, they would actually like use their beak and um, pierce their own chest and let the, their little chicks feed on their own blood and their own flesh. And so then this was taken as a Eucharistic um, symbol that Christ allows us to receive life from him. Uh, an image of this is actually on the top of that altarpiece of Ghent in a different section of it. Um, so we'll let this last line be our closing prayer here. Jesus, whom I look at, shrouded here below, I beseech thee, send me what I thirst for so. Someday to gaze on thee, face to face in light, and be blessed forever with thy glorious sight. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to grow in love of you in the Eucharist, that we would see you truly as a sacrificial lamb, as our bridegroom who pursues us and longs for us and waits for us in the Eucharist, that each day we would firmer hope in you and deeper love you this day and until eternity. St. Augustine, pray for us. St. John Paul II, pray for us. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all.